This is episode 187 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cell Education with Dr. Willie Lynch. Hey everyone, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Are you interested in finding out which of your favorite researchers are being featured in upcoming episodes of the podcast? Check out our list of upcoming guests at www.stemcellpodcast.com slash guests to find out everything you need to know about future episodes. We've got some exciting ones coming up. Today, we have Dr. Willie Lynch from Harvard Medical School. He's on the podcast to talk about his extensive background in stem cell education and research. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news coming up. But first, want to be the sharpest dresser in your lab? Who doesn't? Subscribe to Organoid News, a free weekly newsletter provided by Stem Cell Science News by April 1st for the chance to win one of three personalized lab coats. Very cool. Featuring the latest peer-reviewed Organoid research and reviews, as well as industry policy and science news, Organoid News helps you stay up to date with the field of organoid biology while saving time. Subscribe and enter the contest at www.stemcellsciencenews.com slash organoid-news. And indeed, we're going to start off with an organoid paper. This is something that we actually alluded to, I believe, in our one of our ISCR episodes. Uh, something that I'm actually quite excited about because, in my opinion, this is the first true cardiac developmental organoid. Okay, This is a paper in Nature Biotechnology titled Human Heart Forming Organoids Recapitulate Early Heart and Foregut Development, coming from the lab of uh, Robert Zweigert, and the first author is Lika Droclus. And again, I think we did discuss this on the ISCR episode. I think there was some uh, somebody was presenting this data. It might have been Dr. Droclus. I'm not sure. Forgive me. So organoid models of early tissue development have been produced for a bunch of different tissue types, right? Intestine, brain is super popular. We talked to Sergio Pasca about these things. We talked to Alison Watry, kidney, and other organs too. But, and this is something that's really bothered me for a long time. Similar approaches for the heart haven't really been there. They've been kind of lacking. For the most part, quote unquote, cardiac organoids have been amalgamations of like endothelial cells and cardiomyocytes kind of just smashed together. And those have been called organoids, but they don't recapitulate the development of the heart. Now, in this study, they do exactly that. They're generating complex, highly structured, three-dimensional cardiac organoids or heart-forming organoids that they call them, HFOs, by embedding human pluripotent stem cells in uh, matrigel, <laughs> followed by directed cardiac differentiation. We'll get around to that in a second because that was a, a point of discussion before the show. Uh, but regardless of how they ended up doing them, uh, doing the doing the deed and actually generating these organoids, they're able to make these really neat, complex structures of cardiac tissue combined with endoderm, sort of recapitulating what's going on during cardiac development. You got the formation of the mesendoderm, for example. And they did it by directing cardiac differentiation using a protocol that I'm pretty familiar with. 
biphasic Wnt pathway modulation with small molecules, something I do all the time. And so these HFOs, heart-forming organoids, have this myocardial ring layer. You got to check out the images in this one. It's like almost like a like a tree, like a a ring in a tree trunk or something like that. And you have this little nice green ring of uh, GFP positive NKX 2.5 GFP cardiac cells, my uh, cardiomyocytes. So you got this myocardial layer that's lined actually by an endocardial like layer as well, endocardial-like cells. The endocardium are the uh, the specialized endothelium that are found within the heart and within the chambers of the heart. And they're actually found pretty early during the cardiac development as well. And they're able to naturally induce the formation of endocardium in these developmental organoids. And not only that, but they those endocardial-like cells were surrounded by some septum transversum-like cells. And they actually even, even have uh, distinct anterior versus posterior foregut endoderm tissues, and even a vascular network, like a, a very rudimentary vascular network, but we'll give it that. The exciting thing, as, as I've been alluding to this whole time, is that this architecture kind of resembles early natural heart development before the formation of the heart tube. And they're actually saying that this is more – this is sort of like the the formation of the – maybe the early second heart field or something like that. It's known to actually require the interplay with the, the foregut endoderm development. And so you're having that natural interaction between the endoderm and the mesoderm to actually form not only the, the cells of the foregut. Actually, they actually have some liver populations, some – a few pancreatic populations as well next to their cardiac um, – uh, cardiac cells too. And finally, of course, to to bring it into nature biotech, I guess you have to apply it. You have to apply it to study human disease. So they apply these heart-forming organoids to actually study genetic defects in vitro uh, by showing NKX 2.5 knockout heart-forming organoids show a phenotype that's sort of like the heart malformations that are described previously in transgenic mice. NKX 2.5 is a really important regulator of cardiac development, and by knocking it out, they're able to show a, uh, a, a phenotype that's been seen in mice. So it's, in my opinion, a really exciting uh, cardiac developmental story. It's a, in really the perhaps the first true cardiac developmental organoid as opposed to a tissue that's formed by smashing different cell types together. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing is I remember going on Twitter a while back, a few months ago, and uh, – I was sitting in on a conversation between two podcast guests, actually Benoit Bruneau and uh, James Hudson from down there in Australia. And the Hudson Lab actually had their version of cardiac organoids, uh, whereby they were actually combining cardiomyocytes together with endothelial cells, and they were calling those an organoid. And here comes Benoit, our card-carrying developmental biologist, who very kindly and, you know, respectfully was telling the Wells lab, uh, the Hudson lab, no, that's, that's not a developmental organoid. That's not a cardiac organoid. And I don't think it escalated to blows, but, um, I, I do think it's a point of contention. And this, in my opinion, is the first true cardiac developmental organoid. And it's, uh, it's exciting to see where they're going to go with this one. Yeah, that's what's amazing. There's this dichotomy with uh, stem cell biology and engineering where you think 
because you've got the toolkit that you can make the cells and make the system. But the truth is, while you may be able to like induce the cells or whatever the semantic terminology you want to call it, you got to grow whatever you're making out there. And this is really evidence to that effect. And I, I would agree with Benoit there. But the, I mean, like you, I, I had a look at the, the figures of this paper and I was blown away. My favorite thing about working uh, with the heart in mice, of course, in development is that it's really rich with potential for imaging and understanding many facets of development. You know, this is the first organ. It's the driver of, of vascular perfusion, which is a fundamental prerequisite for growth and size, right? So it's just so much there and the complexity, the, the engineering, the chambers, the different cell types, the, the conduction of the muscle and the, the vascular perfusion and flow. It's, it's so rich. And to see those images that you could get on a confocal, you know, early embryonic stages, E8, E10, where you get real structure and architecture to see that, or at least, you know, some semblance of that, you know, completely de novo from cells is really a watershed. So I have to, I have to hand it to the Zweigert lab here. They've, they've nailed it here. This is gonna, this is gonna ring out for years. Yeah, this is really exciting, but you know, we can take a step back for a second. You and I are definitely excited about it, but no one's saying they were actually forming a true heart in an organoid with like chambers and that sort of thing. <laughs> it's a very early step towards that process, but nonetheless, the fact that you have endocardium in there right next to the myocardium, right next to the foregut, it's it's a positive step and I can't wait to see where they go with this. So dope, so dope, but uh just to, you know, touch on it again, you said we were gonna ug Matra gel, but we're not going to go too deep on that. I'm going to go to another first um, and another organoid story. This was a big deal, also from another alum of the podcast, Ludovic Vallier, who is at the Wellcome MRC Cambridge Stem Cell Institute. He was on the show a few months ago, not that long ago, uh, and he alluded to this story a bit. Although I don't think we had the ears to perk up and, and, and hear exactly what he was saying. Now that I see it, I'm amazed. Uh, we're talking about cholangiocytes, I mean, which is a fancy uh, word for biliary epithelium. Um, but let's take a step back. You know, we, we do a lot of organoid stuff in here and we talk about organoids. Um, but the ability uh, uh, for organoids to repair epithelia or other uh, cell layers and restore the complexity of tissues after transplantation that's not really been established in humans. We've done a lot of these immunocompromised mice, but we can't or have not, I would say. We can't, can't maybe we can in some places, but I wouldn't, um, put the stuff into humans. Uh, and this is a great story about a hack that Valier used uh, using some cutting edge technology, but we'll get to that. Um, the, the bottom line here is, is bile duct epithelium, okay? There's a lot of disorders of the biliary system, um, and, which is the system that transfers bile from the liver to the duodenum. Uh, and they account for 70%. No one talks about this, but they account for 70% of pediatric and up to a third of adult liver transplantation. So it's not always about the liver per se. Sometimes it's about the biliary system, right? There's a lot of transplants. Um, and if we had an alternate, you know, if we didn't have to do the whole liver, maybe it'd be better. We could, we could go a lot farther with the livers we do have. Um, 
And these biliary epithelial cells are also known as cholangiocytes, okay? So what uh, Ludovic and his group here did is they first set out to characterize the diversity of cholangiocytes in vitro using single cell. Um, and they showed that from human patients that there's different, uh, or donors, I don't know if they were deceased or patients, my, my bad. But um, bottom line, they showed that there's different regions of the biliary tree uh, that are have a different transcriptional signature, okay? Uh, so there's regional specificity there. And what's interesting is that when you take the cholangiocytes out of the biliary tree and put them into organoid culture, they'll form these organoids, but they all become interchangeable. Different parts of the tree, they all essentially revert to this generic subtype. Uh, but if you put them back in the context of the environmental cues that are present at wherever they are in the biliary tree, you can restore that identity. So that's a big deal. Because it's ideal, you can take them out, you can unpack them, you can grow them, you can do some stuff, and then you can restore their transcriptional signature. So that's one major insight here in terms of the organoid plasticity. But the real big deal here, and let's just cut to the chase, is that they did some functional testing of these uh, cholangiocyte-derived organoids. Um, and of course, they did the mouse stuff with the immunocompromised, but the key here is they use this newly developed model for cell transplantation in human organs, okay? And these are organs undergoing ex vivo normal thermic perfusion. Uh, and this is a story that we kind of uh, covered a bit in the past about how they're extending the lifespan of livers and getting livers that were not quite, you know, ship shape, um, how they could extend the lifespan ex vivo. Uh, and they use this system, you know, liver just chilling out outside the body to engraft their cholangiocytes in there and show that and really, you know, validate this plasticity, showing that the organoids that have been cultured ex vivo that have reverted to this generic subtype, then you put them back into this normothermic perfusion system liver um, and you get cholangiocytes that were from one region, totally derived from another region of the biliary tree, and they can repair uh, the region where they were put into in situ. So, it's a big study showing that you can get extra hepatic organoids, so organoids from, from a different part of the liver to repair uh, a distal part of the liver, um, and you can get these cultured ex vivo. So it's a proof of principle in a human system that maybe like, you know, we could be using cells, not tomorrow, but this is certainly a good foundation, good preclinical data uh, indicating that we may be sooner than we think uh, transplanting uh, organoid-derived cells into patients. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff to dissect here. The, the number one thing for me is that this paper once again reflects the power of the niche. Okay, So you transplant these cholangiocytes, these organoids, into their, their right niche, and then they're going to restore and improve their function. And I think that's that's a trend that we're seeing again and again in different papers that we've covered here on the show. Um, the other thing, obviously, the ex vivo liver thing is amazing. That's super cool. The fact that you can keep uh, something alive like that outside the body for an extended period of time is, is really exciting. Uh, you know, we're lucky here on the show. We get to break the news before it's news. It's this paper from the Valier Lab, which he actually talked about in his interview. We've got Sergey Pasca talking about his assembloids before the paper is published. We're, we're fortunate. We're lucky in that regard. Don't you think, Dalon? Absolutely. And you know what's great as a as a scientist, just to, to observe the process, it's it's 
to get the idea of the timeline and how these ideas kind of percolate and, and what it takes to bring them into fruition, it's an inspiration. Uh, it's also, you know, it gives you some insight into the process. So we are lucky and uh, we do enjoy breaking the news or hearing the news, at least from these brightest minds. Uh, Arun, this is another one of those stories. Absolutely. And thanks to Dr. Valier for actually sharing that with us back, you know, a few months ago that this is in the works. You know, you don't always have to talk about stuff that's in the works, but the fact you're able to, you're willing to talk about it, it's uh, it's a good thing. And I think it's good for science. So moving on to a paper that came out in Nature, it's actually a very exciting study about macrophages and yet another role for the macrophage that's outside of its traditional role. So the title of the paper here is Macrophages Provide a Transient Muscle Stem Cell Niche Via NAMPT Secretion. So folks from the groups of uh, Jürgen Bockers over at the Hubrecht and Peter Curie over at Monash in Australia have apparently found a factor that can trigger muscle stem cells to divide and to heal. And that factor is actually being uh, secreted by macrophages. So then the mouse model of really bad muscle damage, if you introduce this naturally occurring protein, NAMPT, you can actually get a complete regeneration of muscle and the return of normal movement after severe muscle trauma. So you can immediately see the wide variety of applications for something like this. And the discovery might lead to faster recovery from muscle injury or wasting diseases over during that occurred during aging. So when we tear a muscle, right, the stem cells, the muscle stem cells within it usually repair the problem, no problem. And we can see that occurring not only in muscle wasting diseases like muscular dystrophy, but also like, you know, when we pull a muscle, if we go skiing or we play basketball and we unfortunately pull a muscle, yeah, we're going to be out of commission for a few days, but thanks to our muscle stem cells, we're going to we're going to uh, be good to go, not to in, you know, in a few days, hopefully. Unless, you know, over the course of aging, this whole process slows down a little bit and I can feel it slowing down already, unfortunately. We lose a lot of our muscle and our stem cells, muscle stem cells don't really work as well as they they should. Now, this is where macrophages come in. The, uh, the Curie lab found that macrophages can actually trigger muscle stem cells to proliferate and heal. They basically first studied the cells that migrate to the muscle injury in zebrafish. So they had zebrafish and mice in the study. They had identified macrophages which have a role in triggering the muscle stem cells to regenerate. Uh, the macrophages were, in, in their words, not mine, were cuddling. It's kind of cute. Cuddling the muscle stem cells, which then started to divide and proliferate. And once they actually started the process, the macrophages would move on and give a big bear hug to the next muscle stem cell. And then overall, then the wound would heal ultimately. And how are they doing this? Well, the cuddle is secreting something called NAMPT. The other really amazing thing here is by removing, removing the cuddle, the macrophage cuddle from the entire equation, okay, they found that if you just threw some isolated purified NAMPT into the aquarium water where these zebrafish were being grown, um, you could actually stimulate the muscle stem cells completely independent of the macrophages, okay? And that's a very 
obvious next step is is for application, right? You could perhaps generate a, a patch and a patch that's containing an NAMPT and stick it onto a muscle that's wasting or stick it onto a muscle that's injured. And perhaps that's going to naturally induce the repair of the muscle. And that's actually what they, exactly what they did in, in their mouse model. And they've actually uh, straight up said they're going to take this to clinical trials very soon because the effect was just so dramatic. It's another story about macrophages and how they're doing something that we didn't expect them to do. But the effect here is really quite striking and really powerful. And uh, it's very obviously going to go into clinical trials quite soon. Yeah. That's why I love the blood room. Do you see me? <laughs> Do you see me now? This is uh, another case there with the, the, the wide scope. And here, I guess it's the you know, immunomodulatory anti, or not anti, but inflammatory processes uh, that macrophages mediate. Uh, and it touches all, all tissues, right? So I guess my next question would be like, if it's the muscle stem cells, are there other stem cell niches that may be affected by this mechanism? Or maybe it's not NAMPT through CCR5, or maybe it's some other. Because, um, you know, these macrophages over the course of evolution, they figured out how to do everything. They, and mm -hmm. they, they, they mediate a lot of the restorative uh, processes. You know, we've focused so long about the malignant processes when things go wrong in hematopoiesis. But what we forget is that everything that goes right in our bodies, the way we're able to maintain this robust state that I'm in. I don't know about you, Arun. You know, <laughs> you might want to put some NA and PT on your stuff right now. I'm trying to keep it tight. But um, <laughs> macrophages, macrophages, that's the, that's the way, right? That's the way. The power of the macrophage cuddle. And you're right. If the macrophage can cuddle and restore the function of the muscle stem cell, then perhaps it can do the same for other stem cells as well. We actually talked about on the show a while back how the macrophages have an important role in helping restore cardiac function too. So who knows what's next? Yeah, who said cuddling makes you weak? Cuddling makes you strong. Yeah. Just depends on... I'm all about it. <laughs> who you're cuddling with, right? Get some macrophages in your life. Um, all right, so we're staying in hematopoiesis here because it's a good lead into our guest who is trained in malignant hematopoiesis. This is a story from Jeffrey McGee at Washington University School of Medicine Cell Reports. Uh, it's about KMT2C, all right? And we'll get there. It's really a story about therapy-related myelodysplastic syndrome, or MDS, um, and the therapy related part of that is that after patients have had a lot of chemo, you know, either high dose or multiple cumulative doses of chemo, it adds up and it can, uh, in, in induce these, uh, unrelated malignancies unrelated to the, to the primary tumor or cancer or malignancy. Um, and when that happens, you get this therapy related myelodysplastic syndrome. It, it's, it's very poor prognosis. Uh, even when you double down and give a therapy, usually it's AML, you, you get a, a therapy that works very well for AML, it doesn't work in this therapy-related AML. Um, and the other thing is, is when you look at the mutation profiles in these therapy-related MDS or AML, they're really unique from de novo AML, okay? For example, about half of all the therapy-related uh, AMLs they have deletions in all are part of chromosome seven while you know it's like fivefold less only about five to ten percent of the de novo amls carry this deletion so that 
kind of suggests, amongst other things, that these therapy-related syndromes arise by a distinct mechanism from the, you know, the age-related or whatever, the other AML, de novo. Um, so that brings us to KMT2C. It's one of a lot of tumor suppressors that have been defined, and it's on chromosome 7. It's shown to be deleted recurrently in uh, leukemias that involve chromosome 7. Uh, but despite this tumor suppression function, suppressor function, when you knock out KMT2C, uh, you don't get cancer. The mice don't get cancer. Uh, and when you look at um, age-related clonal hematopoiesis tumors, you know, in older uh, human patients, uh, you don't always see this KMT2C mutation. So it, it suggests that the, the deletion of KMT2C alone doesn't cause the cancer, doesn't give a strong advantage to these malignant hematopoietic cells, um, and that it only, given the other data, the frequency in these therapy-related, that it only arises when you have these cumulative chemo cycles, right? So that was the basis for this study. Uh, and, you know, cutting to the bottom line here, what the McGee lab showed is that the way that KMT2C works and the way that the dysfunction in KMT2C works to bring about disease is that enhances the self-renewal of hematopoietic stem cells, but it doesn't alter their prolifer proliferation rates. Um, and specifically, it the deletion mitigates the, the histone methylation acetylation that occurs as, hum, uh, as hematopoietic stem cells cycle, typically in response to chemo. You know, you hit them with chemo, and typically there's HSC cycle, and they differentiate, but the deletion of KMT2C mitigates that, uh, the epigenetic changes, it mitigates that recruitment and, uh, and, and inhibits that differentiation. Um, and that explains why you see these deletions more common in the therapy-related than the de, de novo, because you need that prompt. You need that insult of the chronic chemo to bring about the, the enrichment of these cells in the absence of KMT2C. So it's an insight. It's an insight on how maybe we could mitigate the, uh, the emergence of these therapy-related mild dysplastic syndromes, maybe by uh, restoring the function of KMT2C, supplementing or protecting. So, you know, it's a, it's, I think it's a nice, uh, a nice study that, that sheds light on something that we've already observed uh, in the literature and, and assigns some mechanism to it. Yeah, nice study that's also reinforcing the fact that cancer treatment itself is such a nightmare. I'm somebody who studies the effect of chemotherapy on the heart. And there are so many drugs out there that, yeah, they can help alleviate the cancer phenotype, but they can cause so many other issues too. So, you know, it, there's a huge need for really improved targeted cancer therapies so that you don't have some of these uh, other off-target effects of the chemo itself. But hey, this is a perfect lead into our, our guest today, the one and only Dr. Willie Lynch, who back in the day was a, an HSC biologist himself, a, an expert on all things blood-related, just like you. I don't know if I'm an expert. I have the interest, though. <laughs> but uh, yes, that does bring us to our interview with Willie Lynch. He was trained in hematopoiesis, in malignant hematopoiesis at OHSU, and that's what led him to his postdoc 
postdoc at the Daily Lab, where he had tremendous and outsized impact in multiple fields in induced pluripotent stem cells. He's going to tell us all about that. Um, but before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell. At the beginning of 2020, Stem Cell Technologies conducted a survey asking scientists to help highlight the needs and challenges in the human pluripotent stem cell field. Read the survey results to learn about the most interesting insights on topics such as irreproducibility and quality control and how to address them in your research. Visit www.stemcell.com slash HPSC survey results to learn more. All right, today on the show, we have the special pleasure of inviting Dr. Willie Lynch onto the show. He's strategic advisor to the dean at Harvard Medical School, also the executive director of the Massachusetts Consortium on Pathogen Readiness. That's since COVID, they put that into play. Willie, thank you so much for joining us. We've been really been looking forward to this episode for a long time. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for being here, Willie. And you've been involved in the educational side of the stem cell field for a long time now. And back before you actually shifted to the administrative side of things at the Harvard Medical School, you were the executive director of the Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology at Harvard. And part of your responsibilities were serving as the faculty director of the Harvard Stem Cell Institute's Summer Research Program, which is where we actually met around like 10 years ago, I think. And honestly, that summer program and your passion for the field is a big reason why I'm actually a stem cell biologist here today. So thank you. And before we actually dive into your involvement on the educational side of things, why don't you tell us what you're working on right now as a strategic advisor at the HMS and why you decided to actually make that jump in the first place? Uh, well, so first of all, you can't blame me for your involvement in stem cell research. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I'm just really happy to, to hear your voice and to see you on the call. It's good to see you. It's been a while. Likewise. Um, so what do I do as strategic advisor? It's It really depends upon the day. Um, I'm the only person in the leadership of the Harvard Medical School who reports to the dean, but to whom no one else reports. And so I'm sort of the dean's deployable guy. You know, I can be assigned to random tasks, to sensitive issues, to urgent issues as they come up, or, or side projects that he wants to sort of test out or stand up. And if they get to the point that they look like they're going to work or they should keep going, then it becomes somebody else's job, if that makes sense. Hmm. And, and so I'm, I'm working on a variety of things relating to uh, the need for increasing diversity at the medical school. Uh, I'm, I'm the dean's liaison to some projects involving other schools. And then since last March, the big thing I've been working on is, is what Dalen mentioned, the Massachusetts Consortium on Pathogen Readiness, or MassCPR, which is Harvard's uh, COVID consortium that has 15 different institutions, millions of dollars in play, trying to focus on the most urgent needs arising from the pandemic. The dean's right hand, so to speak. You make it sound like a kind of a shadow operation. I, I want to do that job. It sounds so cool. It's like a little bit of consigliere, a little bit of a fixer. Um, maybe I'm just totally making that into a fantasy. But I mean, the bottom no, that, line there. That's it. You got it. <laughs> so, yeah, it seems to me like, you know, this is certainly amongst the scientific career paths. I think it would be uh, called the alternative career path. And uh, increasingly, 
these alternative career paths, I mean, alternative to the kind of basic science academic path, they become less stigmatized. I mean, for example, my current postdoc, she's very comfortable telling me that she has zero plans for an academic future, but would, quote, like to wring every bit out of this research experience while she's in it. Um, I, I personally would have been scared or embarrassed or I don't know what to share that thought uh, as a trainee. Um, and I see this as a positive development, don't get me wrong, but I wonder if it's because there's less room in academia, uh, it's become crowded, or because there's more room outside of academia with increasing opportunities. As someone who's taken a less traditional path, a fixer, consigliere, uh, but who also has the opportunity to observe and, as I said, counsel this emergency, emerging uh, generation of trainees. What's your take on the career yeah. landscape out there uh, in yeah. industry and beyond also in academia? Yeah, I think it's the latter point that you made. I think that there's just a lot more awareness of what else is out there, especially in the biomedical research space. I mean, if, if our goal is, is not only to do cool science, which we find fascinating, but to really use that science to improve clinical practice, then there's a lot of other partners that have to be part of this, right? It's, I remember this point I made when I was at one uh, state legislature talking about the need for some, um, uh, uh, some policy work in this area. I said, I, I've never worked at a hospital that actually manufactured pills. Hmm. You know, and it was a pretty basic example, but I think it shows that, that there need to be these handoffs, especially as fewer companies do basic research. And so that awareness of, of the totality of, of the bench to bedside sort of space, I think has become a lot more apparent to trainees and a lot more encouraged at institutions. And I'll, I'll just tell you one more quick thing here. Back when I was in grad school, I remember attending a a faculty meeting as a fly on the wall because the director of graduate education in my program was making a pitch for a combined PhD MBA program for students that were interested in moving into the private sector. And he made the point in, in my trainings in genetics, he made the point that 70% of the jobs in genetics were in the private sector. And so if we were really trying to move the needle in clinical practice and do good, do well by our students to help train them for a bright future, doing something like uh, an MBA with an emphasis in biotech management was going to open up all kinds of, of possibilities mm. for them. And I think that he was a prescient thinker. Mm. And I think that lots of other places are seeing those same things. Mm. Yeah, it's truly a golden age for translational biomedical research. And if you want to start a company in, say, stem cell therapeutics or something or really anything over in Kendall Square. You can basically get some money and start up your own little biotech. And these days, you know, it seems like everything is getting funded left and right, right? So it's really a golden age. And you've actually got a gift. You've got a gift, Willie, that not a whole lot of us have. Okay. And if even we've only been on the, the show for a couple of minutes now, but I think by now our listeners have probably figured out your gift. And that's the ability to communicate science and really anything in a way that's truly accessible to the general public. So you've commented internationally on stem cell research in the media ranging from the New York Times, the Salt Lake City Tribune, and from Forbes magazine to even Sports Illustrated, of all things. So you've talked about stem cell biology with a bunch of folks, federal government officials, local town hall meetings, and have even chatted with religious leaders at the Vatican about the stem cells. Who would have thought, right? And through it all, 
I just want to know, what have you learned about how the general public views advances in stem cell biology and the overall promise of the field? Do you think that the, the stem cell field's potential for good has been adequately conveyed by the scientific community? Or is it, are we really just focusing on how things can go wrong in our field a little bit too much? And how can our scientifically trained audience best communicate the promises of our field to like everyday folks and to the legislatures who actually regulate the field in general? So it's a big question, but I just, I just want to know what you think. Well, I appreciate you saying I have a gift, although I thought you were going to say it's that I'm tall and handsome. <laughs> and well, since, we're on, since we're on radio, everyone can believe that if they would like. <laughs> but that, that very generous of you, um, Arun. And, and I have spoken in a lot of different rooms to a lot of folks. You know, like, like I think a lot of our peers, we end up, in the beginning at least, talking to our peers. We're talking to other nerds about the nerdy stuff that we're doing or our experiments or how excited we are or that, you know, we, we figured out which specific phosphatase does something we're just fascinated by that's the most important thing in the world. But again, when you take a step back and say, you know, why am I here? That, that motivation to do things that are interesting is present in every scientist I've ever met. But for those of us that really want to move the needle for public health, you have to look to the public and say, okay, why, why do people want this work to be successful? And every time I've, I've paused to sort of consider that, I hear a story. And it's usually a really difficult story, right, about somebody in a family, a loved one, a child, uh, a spouse, a grandparent, maybe even they themselves, who they're living a life uh, that's just not as good as they would like it to be. And so those basic motivations for why people in the general public look to research and value research I think always is, is at the forefront of my mind, especially when I was in the laboratory. And so when you take that step to, you know, stop talking to your colleagues and to go to a library or to a school gymnasium or to a state house and to start to talk about biomedical research, you know, not only do you tend to use a different vocabulary, but I think you really have to consider a different set of, of motivations or interests among the people in the room. And, you know, then layered on top of it, especially because I worked uh, back in the day uh, with human embryonic stem cells and human embryos, there was a lot of political controversy and a lot of, of really passionate feelings, both positive and negative in those same rooms about the basic uh, tools and technologies and approaches we were using. And so, I, I think that when you go into a room like that, you have to go into it with the intent of saying why you're there and being um, honest, open, transparent, and conveying why you do the work that you do. And it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's terrific to say, I do it because I'm curious. I like to solve puzzles. I like to figure out why the world works the way that it does. And also, while I'm doing this, you know, I feel like maybe I'm doing my little part to make the world a little bit better than it is. Because if you just talk about the negative things, if you talk about the fears, if you talk about those types of issues, then it, it can tend to overshadow, I think, the positive aspects of what you're doing. But at the same time, you have to be willing to go there on the negative things. You have to be willing to listen respectfully and respond respectfully to people who might have a very different view, a very polarized view, a very energized view. 
you know, there there are some things that have been said to me um, at, at at town hall meetings that um, uh, I, I wouldn't say to, to to anybody, you know, if if they stole my car. <laughs> but uh, that's part of it uh, as well, because we live in a pluralistic society. I don't agree with all of the views in it, but I, I I respect the people and and what they bring to the table. And when we um, put our research out there, we're putting ourselves out there. And when you talk in a public forum, you have to do the same thing. You have to put yourself out there. I don't envy you, man. I mean, getting out there and have people yell mean stuff at you. That that kills you. I've been in the rooms where people are in love with the phosphatase. I get that. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes sense to me. But when you're trying to to convey the importance of your work to people who are fundamentally resistant to it, that's tough, and they hate you for it. I mean, that's even tougher. Um, but we're talking about like the legislation thing. Just staying on that for a second. Um, you said it, the lobbying efforts that you played a part in that was a, made a huge impact in getting the public and their representatives in government on board 20 years ago. Uh, and there was a lot of legislation um, back then, Prop 71, and now even with Prop 14, that continues to play a part in moving the field forward. Uh, but talking to you right there, it makes me kind of wonder where that vocal lobby went. Uh, and I wonder, another major part you played in, uh, in induced pluripotent stem cells with the Daily Lab, you were on that big paper out of there. I wonder, do you think that since some of the major controversies surrounding the work have melted away in large part due to uh, Yamanaka and and subsequent work, do you think that also the, the lobby, that vocal lobby has also kind of dried up? And next question, do we really even need to keep pluripotent stem cell research at the political forefront? Do we need people to keep talking about it and hearing about it, or is it okay now to kind of recede into the background? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. Um, when you go to DC or to your state legislature to talk about anything, especially science, people are very eager to hear what you have to say, but they don't have a lot of time for you to say it. You know, they're, they're dealing with all kinds of issues. The person who walked into the room before you might have been talking about farm subsidies and the person who comes in after you is talking about immigration. So you genuinely have your time, but you have to get to the point. And so I think to what you said a little bit ago, the controversial aspects of the field have largely been resolved. Even when they were really being used as a political drum, Every poll that I saw, the majority of people in the United States, at least, and in other places around the world where polling was conducted, said that they were supportive of the objectives of stem cell research. And so part of this, I think, was that, to be honest, was being used as a political tool in some spaces to advance other agendas that were very important to people, like issues relating to um, abortion or or even taxation and the funding of different federal programs and things like that. But as, as the work has progressed, and that's what science does best, right? It builds upon itself. We go through these transitional technologies. We get to better ways of doing things. Well, I think a lot of that controversial um, nature has died away, and it's been you know, again, th there's very limited slots available when you're talking to folks in D.C., and there's no shortage of issues that our elected officials have to talk about and think about. 
And so I think that it's just no longer on the front burner. And yet many of the basic issues that were always the, the areas where we would try to think through the ethics of things, they're, they're still there. You know, how do you approach problems um, involving limited resources? How do we consider the ethical status of, of the human embryo and what should be done with them? What is a person and when does personhood begin? You know, these are questions that the ancient Greeks, the dudes, long beards and togas sat and thought about, and people still think about them today, including me, even though I'm not wearing a toga and I don't have a beard. <laughs> and so part of those things are still there and they will be um, ever present. But I do think maybe to broaden your question just a little bit more, there's a really important role for scientists to be engaged with public policy. Um, even if for no other reason than the majority of funding that flows into laboratories comes from taxpayer dollars. And I think I've long thought that we owe it to people to sort of tell them what they're getting for their money, let alone that every room that I've gone into, people have been really interested to hear about the science, especially if it's made approachable, especially if you tell the story about why you're fascinated by it. Even in those rooms where people yell horrible things from the back, I couldn't help but notice that when it was my turn to speak, they were quiet <laughs> and they listened. And that's an opportunity because at the end of the day, most people are fascinated by the way the universe works, by how their body works, mm -hmm. by what scientists do, even if they have a very different view about how that work should ultimately be done. Mm. Yeah, I would agree with you there. I think scientific passion is something that's contagious and those of us in science, I'd like to think that we we got into it for a reason because we are passionate about the topic. And to be able to convey that to the general public is, I think, a very important thing. And you mentioned that iPSCs and the Yamanaka discovery really changed the game. And folks in my generation, a lot of stem cell biologists of my generation haven't even ever touched embryonic stem cells just because we have, we've always worked with iPSCs, right? So it's it's really a game-changing technology. And although you're not in the lab too much these days, right, you're in the administration. So you kind of have a bird's eye view of some of these amazing technologies that are emerging at Harvard and around the world, really, in the stem cell field. And so as somebody who's tasked with conveying the promise of stem cell biology to the administrative and legislative folks, what are the technologies coming out of our field these days that really excite you, just like iPSCs did back in the day? Both, you know, you're a card-carrying stem cell biologist and also a, a science communicator. So what are the technologies that really, you know, catch your interest and that you can't wait to tell folks about? Uh, the, so I, I think they generally fall into two areas. The mysteries of nature. You know, and I wish there was some like mystical music playing in the background <laughs> as I say that. Basically, how does development work? You know, how do we go from one cell to all of these other cell types? How are those decisions made? You know, my, my training is in molecular and medical genetics, so I'm very interested in the genetic controls of development. But then the other side was the part that was really what brought me to be interested in the field to start with, and that's tissue engineering how to take the cells you have and use them to make the cells you want or you need in order to address a specific condition and to see how those two things work in parallel. You know, one, one area that, that I, I never worked in, but as I came to have a broader view of, of, of what different folks were working on in the sort of sports medicine area, the ability to generate 
ligaments and tendons and things like that. Right. I, I don't play tennis because um, I would be a danger to myself and others, but you know, there, there are some pretty prominent tennis related injuries or skiing related injuries that I'm sure lots of listeners right now are rubbing their knee and saying, Oh yeah, tell me about it. Um, and to think about how biomechanical forces are really important, you know, that tension in a cell culture system can actually enhance the differentiation of cells that, that lead to the elaboration of matrix and the formation of those structures. At the same time, that experiment is, is being used to figure out ways to design connective tissue to do extensive repairs, to give people greater mobility, or maybe even get them back into something that's good for their body, good for their heart and their soul. Um, that's what I get excited about because I am really fascinated by science. But at the end of the day, what I keep coming back to is I just I want the world to be better than it is. I've worked in hospitals for years, and I'm one of those guys that looks forward to the day of kind of being out of the business of dealing with disease, because that's that that's the goal for mm -hmm. people to have um, a better quality of life, um, not necessarily longer lifespan, but longer health span. And so I tend to get the most excited when I either see some fascinating aspect of, of, of basic developmental biology that's been revealed by basic research or somebody puts a technology on the table that really looks like it has great potential to translate clinically. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, the, the, it's such an amazing tool, stem cells, I mean, generally, it's just an amazing tool to understand and answer questions. But, um, you know, the, the real power and the draw initially was the engineering angle, right? We're going to make tissues. Um, and now we're kind of, it's, it's reaching a, another level of fruition with all the organoids that are becoming even more complex. Um, but I have to ask you, as someone who, who started in hematology, hematopoiesis, uh, to, to address this, because, you know, we're all sweating the organoids and impressed, but I've always been really passionate about a single cell. You know, a single cell can make the greatest difference in this one case, at least. We're talking about hematopoietic stem cells. I know that was your doctoral training. Um, and I don't know if you had a similar experience when you got into pluripotent stem cells as I did, but I, like many before me, uh, was seduced and very nearly destroyed by the <laughs> clinical potential of generating true hematopoietic stem progenitor cells from pluripotent stem cells. Didn't work out for me. We're still waiting to see. I mean, you talked briefly there about... Um, in orthopedic, uh, like tensile and stretch and all that stuff, how it can shape differentiation. At the ISSCR this year, we had a really exciting story from George Escapin from the Shaw Lab at OSU that was talking about how piezo, piezo one and stretch uh, played a role. We're still waiting to see. But uh, my question is, do you think we're going to get there? I mean, you're a guy who played a major role in this IPS story that everyone said forever, I mean, literally for a hundred years, the dogma has been that cells don't go in reverse and it would never happen. And then it happened. Do you think the same story is going to happen for hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent stem cells? Predict, Willie. Yes. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> no, I can put a little, I can put a little bit more fabric around that. So yeah, I, I am a blood guy. I, I go 
way back with an interest in the blood. It actually started, my, my, my father had multiple myeloma, which he died of when I was uh, a young guy in high school. Hmm. And so trying to figure out what the blood is, how it works, how it fails, something that I was really fascinated in. In my PhD training, I studied Fanconi anemia, which is a bone marrow failure disease, a DNA repair disease. And I always kept sort of backing up, trying to understand the, how the genetics of, of having a, a recessive genetic condition leads to eventual bone marrow failure as well as skeletal problems. And I would back up and I would hit this wall of early development and it just being a black box, hmm. right? And so we turn to animal models. You can knock out the Fanconi anemia genes in mice. They don't really get um, the dysmorphology. They don't develop leukemia. They can, they can develop bone marrow failure and it's been this terrific approach, but it's just one example of how the animal model didn't really tell us as much as at least I wanted to know about the human disease. And there was just no way to get there. Like they say in, in Maine, when you ask for directions, oh, you can't get there from here. <laughs> you know, it was just stuck. And I remember I was um, actually laying uh, in bed. I went to grad school at OHSU in Portland, Oregon. And I could actually see the lab building from my bedroom window, which was not the best thing for getting away from work. But I was reading uh, science, as we all do, because it's an incredible syndrome. <laughs> um but I thumbed to the back and I saw this ad for a postdoc uh, guy I'd never heard of, George Daly, at the Whitehead Institute. I knew the Whitehead. And I'm like, oh, that'd be cool. I want to go there. But the bells and whistles suddenly went off because it had the word hematopoiesis and embryonic stem cell. And I immediately realized this is the approach hmm. for being able to go back even further in development, to take a cell that can form blood but hasn't yet done it. And it has that potential and if I can find a way to coax it in that direction, then I can study genetic regulators as genes come on, as genes come off, as chromatin does its magical breathing thing and actually learn something about the, the fascinating area of, of human development that I was long interested in and also maybe get some ideas about how to um, engineer tissue because the, the majority of people who could benefit from bone marrow or hematopoietic stem cell transplantation um, as a life-saving therapy don't have access to it simply because they don't have a donor. So here's a clinical modality that we know works really well. E. Donald Thomas got the Nobel Prize for that, right? Um, but we just need the tissue. And so that's why I started my postdoctoral work and um, really maintaining that interest of human developmental disease, but wanting to understand the fundamentals of blood development. So yes, I do think that that there's incredible potential to get there. There's urgent clinical needs. So it's that sweet spot in terms of something that you can devote your life to. And if I could say even one more thing about this, and this is going to get goofy. It, I, I had a dream about an experiment once. I don't know if you guys have ever had dreams about experiments. But I had a dream that I was able to take a single line of human embryonic stem cells that actually was, was you know, genetically poised to create a positive blood, which I, I know from grad school, malaria parasites actually grow a little bit better in a positive blood, at least the strain that a colleague of mine was working on. And in the dream, I used that one cell line to make vats and vats of red cells only that were used as a standardized infection platform for the evaluation of anti-malarial therapeutics, right? Hmm. 
And so you can see how it's part of that same category of scientific interest. And yet there are all of these other possibilities that stem from it. Ha ha. Mm. <laughs> um, just because you have this single cell that in nature has the ability to elaborate all these other tissues. And hopefully we can come to the point we can pull that off in the lab too. Willie, I must say you're more productive in your dreams than I am in an average day. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So yeah, like you alluded to HSC transplantation, it's really, it's one of the greatest victories of the stem cell field. And there's been amazing discoveries that have been made in the years recently, like Dr. Scapin's uh, this, uh, paper that Daylon alluded to. But for the trainees out there, there's it's still a bit of a black box, and there's still plenty of amazing basic science that has to happen before we can really achieve that that dream, right? So coming back to the, you know, the, the science communication side of things, it's, it's something that we take pride in here on the Stem Cell Podcast. The ability to communicate science and stem cell biology in particular in a clear, concise, relatable, maybe funny way doesn't always happen. But it's not something that always comes naturally to scientists. You know, I mean, you've talk to as many scientists as, as I have, actually way more than I have. And, you know, sometimes we're just happy being siloed away in a lab and bogged down in our technical jargon without really caring for what the public thinks about our work, right? But I think this idea of the isolated, unrelatable scientist is changing, in part thanks to amazing science communicators like yourself, and also, you know, thanks to social media, for better or for worse. So scientists are now more easily able to engage with the lay public by hopping on Twitter, for example. But as a master level science communicator yourself, what are some tips that you would want to give to our listeners and in particular our students and trainees who really want to take their SciComm skills to the next level and engage with the public a little bit better? Well, that's a, that's a terrific uh, a terrific question. I have learned a few pointers over the years. Like on camera, it never wears a striped shirt. It forms this really goofy interference pattern that looks sort of undulating and goofy. And then they just won't run your segment. So you did all that work for nothing. But when you're in the room, there are definitely some things I've learned, especially in those sort of hot button conversations um, that, that seem to work pretty well. First and foremost, the biggest tip is tell your own story. Now, I think that that we, we come in as scientists and we're really excited to sort of treat public outreach like journal club. Well, the public is interested in the science, but by the time you get to figure 1B, you, you pretty much lost them, <laughs> right? So, so come in with your story. Why am I here? I, I'm here because I like coffee and cookies. You know, that's why I attend nearly every meeting I've ever gone to because I know that there's usually coffee available, except during the time of COVID. But you walk in and say, this is why, why I went to grad school. These are the people who influenced me. And you know, you don't have to talk about this for an hour. You talk about it for five minutes and suddenly, instead of this other type of category of, 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 of scientist or some, you know, Einstein haired kind of a person standing there, you are their neighbor. You are a human being. You're a person with uh, lived experiences and emotion and curiosity. And they realize that you're there because you want to share that you're there to be generous. So, so tell your own story. 
Another thing is, uh, I, I'm sure I, I remember you've suffered through uh, several of my lectures, Arun. Allow me to apologize again and to thank you for staying awake. You, you were very nice. <laughs> I don't know about suffer, <laughs> Willie. Come on. I don't know about that. Oh, thank you. See, you're, you're a generous guy. Thank you. Um, you know that when I talk about like the development of, of the field, or even if I'm just talking about a current paper, on the slide, I always include the picture of the person who published that research. Hmm. You know, the data is one thing, and you will spend all of your time explaining the data. But if you show the picture of the person who did the experiment, it humanizes their intent. You know, so many times, especially in the political arena, you get folks that stand up and say, well, scientists just want to create armies of evil clones to dominate the world. And I'm sitting there thinking, gosh, I know a lot of scientists. I've never actually met anyone who wanted to do that. And so I, I don't think that you necessarily have to contradict those stereotypes directly because it tends to give, you know, an argument more credence when you engage with it some ways, but you can do it indirectly by just saying people do these experiments. Hmm. And so I, I find that to be really important. And the, the last point, to just put a third one on the table. I was once asked on a panel uh, at the Whitehead by a, a, a very engaged audience. I remember this gentleman, suit and tie. He said, what's the most, what's the best argument you've ever used to convince anyone that you were right? And I thought about that question and I realized something and said, I think that that's the wrong approach. You should never go into a room with the intent of convincing anyone. Go in and tell them why you are convinced. Again, it comes back to telling your own story. And as educators, we teach ourselves, we teach others when we publish, we teach the public if we get out there, but just tell that story. Help people come to a place where they can make a better, more informed decision instead of telling them what to think. I don't think that that's our role, right? Our role is to do cool science and to put it out there. And then we hope that it survives, that it gets past reviewer number three, that it starts to get uh, cited and that maybe it makes the world a little better. So tell your own story. Yeah, I think you nailed it at the end there about why scientists are the way we are. It's true, we go in a room and we're like, we're already backed into a corner and our, our intent is to convince everyone in the room. And I think it's because of the review process. We send in a paper for review, expecting it to be rejected or to get a lot of heat. You know you're going to have to do six or seven experiments. So like, I guess I would say in defense of scientists who don't communicate that compelling an argument, it's probably because we're, we start in a corner, or it feels like that sometimes. Um, but Yeah, and it's not for everybody. Right. right. Going going to a library or a retirement community to talk about science isn't for everybody. And when I when I talk to folks um, who want to get out and do this and give pointers, one of the most often expressed concerns is, well, what if they ask me a question about something I don't know? <laughs> and it's just that, well, say, well, I don't know. And and it's not like your qualifying exam. Right. You can ask questions. Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer. But what do you think? Why did you ask that question? Yeah. You know, what are you interested about? And and then, especially if you're in one of these hot button areas like fetal tissue research or whatever, you have to be prepared to, to sort of deflect the arrows without inflaming the situation. Mm -hmm. Like I remember this time I was at a school gymnasium in Jamaica Plain. One of our state representatives invited a panel of us there because he wanted to give a town hall meeting to his constituents. 
And someone from the back of the room yelled out while I was talking, you're a Nazi doctor. <laughs> so, uh, so what do you do with that? Well, I just responded, oh, nobody wants to talk about those guys. <laughs> and then everybody laughed and we went on. You know, it diffused the situation. Yeah. And so it can it can be hard to to deal with it when it gets to a pinch point like that. But there are ways to sort of dodge the arrow without trying to catch it. Willie, I got to tell you, I have never been so educated by a guest in a podcast. This is like I'm, I'm taking notes here. and I can't wait to go and talk to people because I want to take your tack. I think it's going to be a lot more effective I got to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, but before we let you go, uh, we're going to ask you a couple of peripheral questions here. Uh, I'll start with this is a new batch. We've had uh, the same circuit going for years now, but we're spicing it up a little here. First question, what is the best piece? I mean, you're giving so much advice here. So I got to ask you, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, professional or not? Oh, wow. Oh. Uh. Okay, so I usually go with the first thing I think, because that's my brain waving its hand, right? So what I immediately think of, I remember this time, I don't know if it was after a paper got reviewed or I got trashed giving floor meeting or something like that. And I was sitting in the cell culture room and I was dejected. And one of my fellow postdocs, a terrific guy, still a close friend of mine, uh, Mohammed Azam, came in and he said, Willie, what's wrong, man? And I just said, there are so many sharks in science. It's like the only way to survive is to become a shark. And he said, no, Willie, become a whale. <laughs> and it was funny. He made me laugh. He picked me up. But, but he, was, he was right. You know, you, you can't be afraid to go in the ocean because there are sharks there. Be a whale. Mm. <laughs> Find a way to push your path forward, to do the stuff that's fascinating, to tell everybody about it and keep going. Be a whale. Easier said than done. <laughs> Next question. What is the biggest misconception about science that you would like to set right? Oh, that's a good question, too. I mean, I've touched on some things about how people do science, that it's actually very, very humanistic. But I think to, to put a little bit of a spin on that, something that I find surprises people is that actually science is such a creative endeavor. Hmm. You know, people think that you're like writing formulas all day and you've got like the wire thing with the zap of electricity going between it, you know, and it's, it's just very sterile and stripped down. And we approach things in an empirical way and as reductionistic a way as we can, so we can really understand what's going on. But science is so creative. It is such a creative enterprise. I mean, not only trying to like stare at the sun and figure out what can I do to get from here to there in an experiment, but even making slides and giving a presentation and making a visually compelling figure. I mean, I would imagine anyone who's listening to this, when they saw the first images from the rainbow mouse, from all of those neurons, everybody went, wow, hmm. you know, look at that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. And the first response you have to seeing all the colors is that it's visually beautiful. But then you start to realize 
that each one of those neurons has an individual identity and the development becomes beautiful too. Hmm. And so uh, science is for creative people. And some of the people I know who are the best scientists, they're great writers, they're great musicians and, uh, and great artists. Yeah, I say science is the most fun game. It's just you don't really know the rules. That's the thing. Um, Willie, thanks again, man. This was a, a lot of fun and a lot of insight, too, which is, you know, we don't always get both in one. So we appreciate you joining us, and we got to have you back on again for some more of those kernels of uh, communication knowledge. Thanks, man. It'd be my pleasure. I got a million of them. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. I don't think you're going to come up with suggestions that are much better and today's guest, the honorable and esteemed Willie Lynch. He really dropped some insights on us, and we appreciate him giving us a facet of science, you know, that we don't typically get on this show. I really learned a lot, Willie. Thanks again. And all you guys, thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Tune in. <laughs>